was we've been in this <clears throat> series on discipleship, first thinking about uh, the call to discipleship a couple weeks ago. Uh, Tom spoke about what it means to be a follower of Jesus who is seeking others. And Jesus said to those first disciples, follow me and I will make you to become fishers of men. So follow Jesus and help others follow him. Those are the, the two components of the call. And this means that discipleship is fundamentally toward Jesus, but it's also outward, toward others. We, we live outward. That's how a Christian is. Then last week, Tom, Tom talked about the, the cost of discipleship, that, that suffering while we follow Jesus is inevitable, but we don't run from it. We embrace suffering as we consider Jesus, who endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. And then we find that in giving up autonomy, giving our allegiance to Jesus, uh, we find great freedom. In losing, there is gaining. So both of those topics, the call and the cost of discipleship, come from the Gospel of Mark. And this morning we want to think about uh, how discipleship happens in the context of the local church. So what does a community of followers look like? And how do we cultivate a culture of discipleship in this church? And the local church is the place where in real life, the followers of Jesus come together and do the things that followers do. You know, we are a community of followers, and we want to grow in understanding that reality. But the challenges are stacking up against us. You know, there are deeply embedded cultural principles, uh, dynamics that shape the way that we think about church and about life, we don't intend to be shaped by them. It just kind of happens silently. Uh, for instance, multiculturalism. Multiculturalism is the, the impulse to promote uh, the coexistence of, of various sorts of mini-cultures. So rather than integration into one broad national identity, uh, everyone keeps their identities of origin or choice. But we're finding that multiculturalism actually intensifies resentment when there's no transcendent basis for unity, which means that multiculturalism actually leads to isolation and the segmentation in society. The tragic events of this past week are one instance of this. There are other instances. Uh, for example, there are places in London that are no-go areas for, for police in London because Sharia law is operative in those areas. There are other areas in London that are particularly Hindu, and those customs dominate and rule in, in those areas. So rather than the next-door neighbor uh, being a Muslim or the guy down the street being Hindu, instead what's happening is this increasing division and segmentation of neighborhoods. The project of multiculturalism, in other words, is a failing project. You know, diversity is a beautiful byproduct, uh, but an impossible end goal. And then there's individualism. Be true to yourself. Be you. Be who you are. So everyone pursues his or her own good. And the core principle of morality and ethics for individualism is self-expression. But this also generates infinite conflict. You know, what happens when me being me impinges on you being you? And it also tends to exclude provision and care for those who have the least capability of expressing themselves, the fewest advantages in society. 
So individualism doesn't deal well with conflicting interests, nor does it deal well with systemic problems like poverty. And then there's a strong current of anti-institutionalism in society. And we don't like the establishment. Everyone wants to be heard equally. Uh, the majority want to get their way and determine what happens. And so we have unrest because the U.S. is not a direct democracy, but rather a republic where the institution of elected officials is responsible for making decisions. This was set up by the, the framers of the Constitution because they feared what they saw as the tyranny of the majority. And so they modeled government of the United States on the Presbyterian Church, which also is not a democratic institution, but rather leaders are elected to act on behalf of the people. But now dissatisfaction with that institution is on the rise. Uh, so the anti-institutional impulse grows. But in each of these dynamics, there, there is some sort of aspiration toward community, some sort of vision of what a flourishing community looks like. The only problem is that there's no foundation for it. There is aspiration to be sure, but no foundation. So they're not actually helpful. They uh, do not deepen society and relationships, but rather have isolating dynamics. So at this moment of cultural challenges, Christians cannot lose concern for the broader culture. Uh, but we have to recognize that we will most effectively navigate and witness to the culture out there when we are most effectively making culture in here, in the church. We'll most effectively navigate culture out there when we're most effectively making it here in the church. Because in the call to be followers of Jesus, we have the foundation for a new kind of culture. We have not only aspiration to community, but also the foundation for it. One of the best places to see this call to a new kind of community in Scripture is in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. In Ephesians, Paul has been providing the Christians with an explanation of their, their new identity, trying to give them a sense of who they are in Christ. He says, to understand who they are, they shouldn't look inside themselves to express themselves, but rather they should look to Christ. He tells them they were once enemies of God, but now they have been made friends of God through the work of Christ. So the person and work of Jesus then is the basis for their identity, and this understanding of their, their new identity is developed in a new community. So if you were listening carefully as this passage was read by Jean, you heard Paul explained both the foundation of this new community as well as um, provide some various images to describe uh, the community dynamics that should be present. So first, let's look at the foundation of this new community, the foundation of this community of followers. Look at verse 11. He says, remember that at one time you were and then he reminds them of their former condition. Look at the words he uses. Uh, separated, alienated, strangers, you no hope, you're without God. So they were separated from Israel, God's specially loved people, and they were separated from God and Christ. And this principle of separation that Paul brings up wasn't unique to the Gentiles, though. It's, it's common to all of humanity. Adam and Eve's sin in the Garden of Eden introduced separation into relationships. 
they, um, they, they sinned, and as soon as they sinned, uh, what did they do? They hid from God and from each other, and they covered up from each other because they were ashamed. And ever since then, those are relational instincts for everybody. We hide and we cover up. And our best attempts at overcoming separation and relationships apart from the gospel are inevitably insufficient in one way or another. It's, it's true, um, good fences make good neighbors, whether on the same street or between two countries. But it's deeply sad that we need fences. Then look at verse 13. Uh, Paul says, But now in Christ Jesus and, and by the blood of Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near, brought near to each other. So Jesus has introduced reunification. Uh, the separation that dominates our experience of relationships has been overcome. So then look at the new words Paul uses in verses 14 through 16. He talks about this wall of hostility, the fence of separation. He says it has been broken down, and so there is one new man or one new humanity. Hostility has been put to death. Peace has been made, and he preaches peace to those who were far off and those who were near. Reconciliation uh, to God and to each other. So the work of Adam and Eve has been undone. No more hiding, no more covering up necessary because Jesus died for his enemies. And because Jesus died for his enemies, he becomes the foundation for new relationships that are relationships of service rather than relationships of selfishness. So the, the work of Jesus is, is the foundation for a new kind of humanity, new quality of relationships. And then the church is built on him. The church is a community of people who follow him and who build their lives around him, around this foundation of peace that he has created. So if we are disciples, if we are disciples who have responded to his call to follow and who have considered the cost of following him, then we become part of this community of people who are likewise reconciled to God and to one another through Jesus Christ. Which then leads us to this, this second point, the, the dynamics of this community of followers. So if that's the foundation, then in verses 19 through 22, uh, Paul uses three images to describe the dynamics of this new community. First, he tells them that they are fellow citizens, no longer strangers and aliens. Now you are fellow citizens. Second, he says you are members of the household of God. So you're in a new family, members of God's household. And then third, Paul says that we are collectively a dwelling place for God, a, a dwelling place. For, we are God's temple. So the principle in all three of these images is that, is that the disparate pieces have been brought together and, and joined. Uh, fellow citizens, your, your family members of God's family, your God's dwelling place, his temple. These are images with implications. We are no longer foreigners or refugees, but we have become fellow citizens. And this means that we relate to one another via a new identity. I heard a Scottish pastor last week uh, explain how his daughter, who was born in Ireland, met and married her husband, who was born in Lebanon. 
And early in their marriage, they had uh, a lot of different tensions related to the cultural differences that existed between them. But they moved to America, and over the years, they together became American. So that 15 years later, um, a lot of those tensions that they had experienced early in marriage re resolved as they together became a third thing. They became American. As disciples of Jesus, we have left behind our prior identities and we have become a third thing. We have become citizens of a heavenly community. You know, the church is the one place where multiculturalism should work because we all relate via a, a new transcendent narrative that the gospel gives us. It unifies us and gives us coherence as a body of disparate pieces joined together in Christ. And now through the gospel, we actively pursue unity. So it's, it's not just a passive reality, but something that we actively pursue. So what relationships will look like in heaven, which is where our citizenship actually lies, that's what we're trying to become here. We're trying to develop that kind of community here in the church, fellow citizens. And then we're called family members. Family members. God's, God's family. We're, we're adopted. We have become children. We've been brought into a new home, adopted by the Father. Jesus, the Son, is our eldest brother. He's the model sibling. And all over the New Testament, family language like this describes the kind of community that we should be. And for instance, Paul says that in his own attempts at, at discipling, uh, helping other people to follow Jesus, he, he describes it as, as having spiritual children. So discipling, uh, helping others follow Jesus, is like having children. It adds many layers to layers of joy to life, but um, demands many layers of sacrifice at the same time, which Stacey and I are on the verge of enjoying. Um, but when that relational effort is invested, the return uh, of all that, that demand, that effort, is, is like a harmonious family living together. In another place, the Apostle Peter uh, beautifully describes husband and wife as heirs together of the grace of life. He tells husband, husbands and wives that um, they, they live together as those who have inherited both holiness and heaven. And that is true not only of marriage, but of all believers. We are a family of people headed for heaven. We are heirs together of the grace of life. And so we, like a family, uh, help one another follow Jesus in holiness on the path to heaven. We're heirs together of the grace of life as a family. And then Paul says we are God's dwelling place. God's dwelling place. This is the third image he gives them. Uh, it's God's temple. And so Paul says that we, uh, the members of Christ's covenant church, are like a building project in the midst of construction. Uh, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit gives gifts, uh, like public speaking and uh, exercising hospitality and gifts of service. Uh, and the Holy Spirit also gives fruits, uh, love, joy, peace, patience, so that those things, the, the gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit might, might be used as tools and building materials for the completion of this construction project. And then what does the building look like when it's finished? It's God's temple. 
It's a holy place set apart for God to dwell in. So that the many gifts and fruits of the Spirit spread out among us um, come together, making a beautiful home for God to live in. So these, these are the images that Paul gives, and these images collectively describe the, the dynamics of the community of followers of Jesus, who, people who are building their lives around him. Now, the role that all of this teaching plays in our discipleship series is this. What we are trying to get at how to cultivate in our church this kind of community that Paul describes in Ephesians 2. You know, if these things are true in reality of us, because of what Jesus has done, because of the, the kind of people he has made us into, then how do we embody these truths as a body? One of the most distinctive ways that the New Testament writers um, describe the community of followers is the one another passages. So there are about 60 places in the New Testament where um, the writers give the, these various imperatives about how we're to live together. Uh, be devoted to one another. Love one another. Carry each other's burdens. Forgive each other. Submit to one another. So those are things we should do, and then there are also things that we shouldn't do. Uh, stop passing judgment on each other. Don't be conceited and don't envy one another. Don't lie to one another. Don't grumble against each other. Notice these imperatives are about both attitudes and behaviors. You know, we can't just feel things towards other people, but we actually have to live it out toward real, live, breathing human beings. You, you have to exercise these things toward people. It requires interaction with others. It requires uh, developing relationships with others and having lots of FaceTime with people, not Apple FaceTime, actual FaceTime with people. This means we as Christ Covenant Church have to be working together to develop these uh, thick family-like relationships where we feel mutual obligation to one another. Uh, in Paul's words, be devoted to one another. There's no more important aspect of discipleship, of the formation of Christian character, than deep involvement in the life of the church, the Christian community. Now, living in a, a free market, um, consumer kind of economy, we, we tend to apply consumer patterns of thinking all over our lives. But we have to resist the gravity in that direction and, and learn to be contributing to the community, uh, not merely consuming from the services of the church. You know, many people think of the church like a mall where they come to get what they want rather than thinking of it as something they give themselves to. Uh, but the church is not a mall. Again, think of Paul's language. Uh, be devoted to one another. So what kinds of things will a community of followers of Jesus do? You know, how do you be a contributor to this kind of community? Well, let me suggest five ways uh, that we can be contributors rather than consumers. First of all, share life together. Uh, and these are all together suggestions. So the first one is share life together. So think about the things that you're doing and how you can include other people in it. So some of you are walkers. Go for walks together. Uh, do house projects and yard projects together. Have meals together. Live outwardly. This is what we do as Christians. 
Uh, we are oriented towards including others in our lives. You know, some of my best conversations with um, guys in this body have been over a long run or over a good cup of coffee. Just think of the things that you regularly do and how you can include others in it. One person said, the essence of becoming a disciple is uh, becoming like the people we hang out with the most. Just as the single most formative experience in our lives is our membership in a nuclear family, so the main way that we grow in grace and holiness is through deep involvement in the family of God. So share life together like a family. Uh, Secondly, have spiritual conversations. Have spiritual conversations. So when you're with others, uh, move conversation towards spiritual things. Uh, You might think of this as moving from experience to commentary. Uh, So I was talking with a friend uh, last week about some some uncertainties feeling about future decisions he's got coming up. His experience of those decisions, uh, how he was experiencing uh, the frustrations was uh, a mixture of anxiety, uh, uncertainty, frustration, but But then he moved um, from his experience of those things, he moved the conversation uh, to commentary about those things, reminding himself and reminding me in the process of how God reigns over all things, even in the difficult and mundane decisions of life. And it turned into a fruitful conversation about scripture, about life. Your conversations have the ability to strengthen and uphold flagging weary hearts but you have to move the conversations in that direction. Especially if you're uh, in high school or middle school. Remember, the kinds of conversations that you have with your friends, uh, it reflects who you are, but your conversations, your friendships, also shape who you are. The kinds of things you talk about will determine what you become. So talk about your struggles Uh, with obedience to God and how you can obey him even in difficult areas. You know, I know that may feel awkward at times, but awkward is not to be avoided at all cost. In fact, you may find that your friendships actually benefit from a healthy dose of awkward. So have spiritual conversations. And then third, read and pray together. Read and pray together. So read the Bible uh, yourself to be sure. You know, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And, and reading the Bible and praying are two basic actions of the Christian life. Hear God speak in his word and speak back to God in dependence and thanksgiving and prayer. So read and pray. And then as you do those things, just choose other people to do that along with. Uh, Maybe choose two people, one who isn't a Christian and one who is. Uh, read the Bible together. You know, of course, you could do it with more people than that, but if you have zero, s- start with one who is a Christian and one who isn't. Uh, read maybe a book together that would help you understand the Bible better. Or if you have a friend who's not a Christian, suggest reading uh, a book together that might be real accessible for non-Christians. Maybe a book about marriage or parenting or, or one of the Navigator's booklets that introduces Christianity. If you're with a Christian, spend time together in prayer. Corporate prayer is not something that has to be scheduled on the church calendar. It's something that happens across all our relationships all week long. So read and pray together. And then fourth, work on sin together. Work on sin together. Maybe intimidating to you just to think about that. 
we all have secret sins uh, that we conceal from others. We have besetting sins that we can't seem to conquer. We have unknown sins, otherwise known as blind spots. But the reality is that sins of any sort destroy happiness. They increase our anxiety and they wither our affections toward Jesus Christ. We pursue sin not because we think sin really represents the the truly best way to live, but often because we can't seem to find an exit ramp to get out of it. Spiritual friendships are one of God's means of grace to get out of sin. That's why Paul says, brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any kind of transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And when he says you who are spiritual should restore him, he's not uh, identifying a special elite class of Christians. He's talking about anyone who has the Holy Spirit. So if you're a three-day-old Christian, you have the Spirit. You are spiritual, and you should restore the one caught in transgression. So we confess our sins to God because our sins are against him and he forgives But we should talk about our sins with one another because the community of faith is one of God's means of grace for helping us to overcome sin. So no more hiding or covering up like Adam and Eve is necessary. We are free to be transparent with one another and to be helpful to one another. We're all broken in a variety of ways, and we all know that. There's plenty of room in the gospel for that. So work on sin together. And then number five, make decisions together. Make decisions together. So we're all making life decisions constantly, every day, every week. Who should I date? Where should I go to college? Who to marry? Uh, When to have kids? Uh, Where to work? When to switch jobs? Should I move? Am I too busy? Um, we, We face these kinds of decisions all the time. So work through these decisions with friends asking for their help in applying biblical wisdom to these various aspects of life. And give other people the right to say no. Uh, Don't be overly sensitive when your thinking or or your decision-making process is challenged. Rubber stamps don't make good friends. We want people who will challenge us. But receiving constructive resistance, of course, requires humility in the process. So make make decisions together. These things Uh, aren't exhaustive. These these are pointers, suggestions about the kind of community we ought to be together. Suggestions about how to be a a contributor uh, to that community. But here's the most important thing to catch from from all of this. You know, we are to be a community of followers who is simply good at building relationships that are centered around the work and person and message of Jesus. We should be a community of followers who are good at building relationships that are centered around Jesus. C.S. Lewis said, what draws people to be friends is that they see the same truth. They share it. So so we aren't just staring at each other. Uh, We together are staring at Jesus Christ. Our attention is on him. Stacy and I have been really thankful to be members of Christ Covenant Church. We've been here seven years now, and we've experienced all of these kinds of things in our time here. All these examples I've given are really just examples of, of the things that we have experienced in relationships in this body. But we have to continue growing 
as a, as a body, as, as a family in these things. As new people are added to the church and as we continue feeling growing pains of, of various kinds, we have to grow all the more in intentional spiritual friendships uh, with one another. The culture of our church has to be all of us doing this, not just a few people, all of us sharing this vision. If just a few people are doing it, that's not culture, that's subculture. We want everyone to be doing this. Those who are on the periphery, uh, moving toward the center. Uh, we, we are an organization, uh, but we have to be thriving on the organism level, the relational level. You, know, you can look at our website um, and, and see on our website the, the structure of our church, the ministries of our church, uh, the staff and elders, uh, the, the calendar, the statement of faith. But the life of the church is all of you. you know, your names aren't on the website, but you are the church. One of the, one of the easiest ways to, to think about next step in contributing to the community, one, one of the easiest things you could do is just stick around after the service on Sunday mornings. Build relationships with people. Meet one new person each week. You know, come to church maybe with a sticky note. I've got my yellow sticky note on the chair right there. Um, a sticky note of people you want to talk to, uh, people you've been thinking about and praying for. Uh, take five minutes before you come to church and think about the different needs of people. Who do you know who is struggling, maybe having job struggles or marital or relationship struggles? Be, be ready to ask about how things are going for them and how they've seen God's grace at work in their lives. Or who do you know who has experienced some, some joy that you can celebrate with them and give thanks to God together with them? You know, weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who rejoice. Being intentional as you come to church about uh, relating with others on those kind of spiritual levels. We want to be eternally useful to one another. We want our relationships to bear spiritual fruit. You know, surely you can think of some person in your life who has been so influential spiritually uh, for you. Who are you doing that for? You know, how can you be that person for someone else in this body? The call to follow Jesus is a call into a community of people who follow him. You know, Paul says, in Galatians, Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. And Paul also says in Ephesians, Jesus loves the church and gave himself up for the church. So the love of Christ, that love that makes enemies of God into friends of God, that love is directed toward individuals. Jesus loved me and gave himself up for me. And yet, those individuals are part of a community that Jesus loves, the church, which he gave himself up for. So we are a community of people who are deeply aware of the reality that we are no longer refugees. We are citizens. We are members of God's family. We've been invited to the family table. So as a community... We are people who celebrate together. We celebrate these truths, the gospel that Jesus has called us into by his grace. When we gather on Sunday mornings, when we eat meals together on Friday nights, 
we give thanks together for the redeeming love of God who has set his love on us in Jesus Christ. So let's take a moment now of silence to, to bow our hearts before God in an unhurried moment of remembering the undeserved and unlimited love that he has shown for us in Christ. And after a moment, Larry will uh, come and close us in prayer.